to our symposium, or panel discussion, if you will, this afternoon. Uh, I'm Ann Walter, member of the faculty, uh, and I have the pleasure this afternoon of hosting many of your friends and colleagues uh, as I speak to the alums. I'm going to speak for a few minutes talking about them while we're waiting for the students to take down their posters, so they'll be coming in soon. Our format this afternoon is that we're going to hear from a number of very successful scientists and mathematicians, a little bit about what they've done, a little bit about how they got there, maybe some words of advice, not totally sure what we'll learn. Um, so right now I'm going to introduce them a little bit. You have some information on the card, I believe, that's coming in, but I'll tell a few things. One of the exciting things about this panel you're going to hear is the uh, theme that has to do with strengths, and the theme of strengths. Our first member of the panel is uh, Dr. Roger Stolen, class 59. At the moment, he is a distinguished visiting professor of material science and engineering at Clemson University. He spent his career, most of his career, at Bell Labs, and I think of Bell Labs as being a mecca for wonderful, indulgent sorts of inventions, the kind of crazy, wonderful things that the world can do. Um, and then he was a professor in electrical engineering at Virginia Polytech at, uh, in Blackburn, Virginia. He majored in physics at St. Olaf. That's what got him onto his career, earned his PhD uh, from the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, and did a postdoc at the University of Toronto. What does he do? Uh, he's an optical fiber expert. I think those are important for communication. That's going to be a link here today. Um, and has added many <coughs> fundamental contributions in the field of light propagation in fibers. Importantly, since moving to Virginia and then on, I guess, to South Carolina, he is playing the fiddle. That's his job, playing the fiddle. So that, that's an important contribution. Hold on to that. That's part of the strings. Holding the group together. Our second speaker is going to be, you're going to be in the middle there. The second speaker will be uh, Dr. Allison Wallace. Uh, Dr. Allison Wallace is in the middle there. Um, she is currently a professor of biosciences at Minnesota State University in Moorhead. Uh, she came to St. Olaf to study music, violin, I believe. Somebody should take note, that's the second string. Um, but after apparently a summer field season with Henry Kermot studying RIMS, and then uh, combining that with being a TA or a teaching assistant with Alice Burton, uh, Allison decided that uh, life as a teacher, scholar in biology would be an interesting thing to do. Uh, so she became a biology major, uh, one who was focused on teaching. I might embarrass her to say someone whose <coughs> teaching passion may follow her mother. Uh, but this is, this is delightful. Uh, Allison has done a number of things. She was a pioneer in considering the effects of climate change and biological systems 
In particular, studies the effects of increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere on nitrogen fixation in plants. Uh, she currently uh, has mixes her interest in plants, prairies, and especially education with many colleagues and collaborators. So, a wonderful, well-connected person. Our third speaker will be Dr. Teresa Hull-Wise. Uh, she is the Chief Information Officer of Northwest and Delta Airlines now. Um, she has a few challenges. She leads technology development and information technology for the airline. She also has a passion for a violin uh, that she still plays as a true Oli. She plays the violin in the Bloomington Symphony currently and is an active member of a number of community organizations. Uh, between playing the violin at St. Olaf Family in Bloomington and becoming the Chief Information Officer at Northwest, uh, she studied mathematics, she studied mathematics and chemistry along with her, her violin here, and did a PhD in operations research at Cornell University. Dr. Kathy Weil, fourth one on the line there, is currently a research material scientist at the United States uh, Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C. She's been there since 95. She graduated from St. Olaf with majors in physics and mathematics, uh, earned her PhD in material science and engineering from Northwestern University. Uh, right now, that's the physics of sliding and sticking adhesion between surfaces uh, that uh, Dr. Wall is interested in studying. Um, she measures these things in situ, and I'm really excited that she's really interested in biological materials and their slipping and sticking, in particular the sticking of barnacles. Lots of interesting questions that involve pulling together chemistry, biochemistry, physics, um, a true interdisciplinarian. She played the viola at St. Olaf and now has graduated to handbell. <laughs> yeah. uh, last but not least, uh, Dr. Helen Kowinka uh, Worms uh, graduated in 79. She is currently the Gertie Corey Professor of Cell Biology and Physiology at Washington University School of Medicine. <coughs> After graduating from St. Olaf, she attended graduate school at Duke University in microbiology and immunology, had postdoctoral training at the Dana-Farber Institute, and then held several faculty positions uh, before moving with her husband, David, who's here, there are several spouses here, uh, to Washington University. Um, like many of our speakers, she's won a number of awards. Her interests are in cell cycle, cell cycle regulation, and cell cycle dysregulation, uh, in the case of cancer. She doesn't play the violin, the viola, or the fiddle. <laughs> That's why I'm speaking last. <laughs> oh, in fact, she is a true science building nerd, and I think that, you know, that's amazing because she didn't have this to be, to be in, so this is truly, really good. So with that, I can say that each of our speakers will talk for about 10 minutes. If you see me stand up again, it's because they've gone on too long. I know that. Uh, and I hope we'll raise some provocative questions because the rest of our, our time together will be questions from you. So,
1959. It's kind of a long time ago. I wish I could kind of cover that up. And <laughs> slip a couple of decades in there. It was so long ago that the names you see on the buildings were attached to real people who were on the faculty. Aid <laughs> Christensen was football coach. Mark Omley was dean of men. Gertie Hillable was dean of women. Branskow was president. They were also pretty good times for science. Um, physics, chemistry were riding high from the contributions they made in World War II. Um, while I was here at St. Olaf, uh, was when Soviets put up the first Sputnik. In fact, I was standing uh, probably 200 yards from here in front of Steensland Hall when someone came rushing up with the news. Um, there was money for basic and applied science in all the industrial labs for all the major corporations. And there seemed to be plenty of money for, um, for research funded by various government agencies. Um, like I say, those were good times for science. I started in 1955. Actually, I started in chemistry. Hate to admit that, but I learned after about one semester was that I really, what I really liked about chemistry was physics. And that what I didn't like about chemistry was chemistry. <laughs> and so I went from the top of the old, actually not the old science building, Holland Hall would be the old, old science building. Uh, from the top of Holland Hall down to the bowels of the building where the physicists lived. And I talked to Peter Possum, uh, who was head of the department, an absolutely wonderful person, switched my major. Um, and I've never actually regretted that. Uh, certainly, uh, education at St. Olaf, I think, uh, I got a very good education in physics, math, and chemistry, um, which you know, I think was really very important. But I think some of the non-science things were also important, the courses in history and um, uh, economics, religion, and of course, meeting and living with people who had different interests in different fields is something that I don't think people get who are at an engineering school or a purely technical university. Um, I also worked at WCAL, which is a shame that it's not here anymore. It was the second oldest operating radio station in the United States. Um, also um, may have caused a certain amount of trouble. Uh, we rewired the big sound system, which was on top of the Itterbow Hall, and played a rock around the clock at 3 o'clock in the morning, just before exam week in the spring. <laughs> I should also point out that the class of 59, who were freshmen in 55, was the first and maybe the only freshman class to burn the Carlton bonfire. <laughs> um, Anyway, I think uh, you get a pretty good education in liberal arts and liberal arts plus science. And it seems to have gotten me a teaching assistantship at Berkeley, uh, where I went into uh, solid state optics. May not mean a whole lot to people, but uh, it was far infrared spectroscopy. Um, I think it was a good background in a lot of fields, actually, uh, physics, electrical engineering, chemistry, optics, low temperature physics. Um, and went on from there uh, to the University of Toronto. Now, what I was really trying to do is to get a postdoc in Europe, but somehow the furthest foreign shore that I could get to was on the other side of Lake Ontario. Um, 
But that was actually very fortunate. I went to work for one of the few physicists who was interested in lasers. Somehow physicists weren't interested in picking up the laser when it was invented. They, they called it a, a solution in search of a problem. I got it wrong. Um, and Boris Stoichev, who was professor there, was one of the two or three who really went into optics and it was a tremendous opportunity to learn a lot. Combination of University of Toronto and, uh, and Berkeley got me to Bell Labs. I started out doing what I had done in graduate school, which was called far infrared spectroscopy. And um, that turned out not to be terribly popular. Fibers were just being thought of at that time. People were trying to bring the laser into communications and nobody quite figured how. You couldn't get the light from here to there. You know, if you shined it through the atmosphere, it just got all shimmery and got all messed up. So they were trying to find a way of piping it from here to there. Fibers were one of the possibilities. Um, I got asked a question. The question deals with something called nonlinear optics. Now, fortunately for you, I don't happen to have my short course on, <laughs> on fiber nonlinear optics. So I'll have to give you the, the two minute or the 30 second synopsis. When the laser was invented, people made bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger lasers. And uh, they kept blowing things up, of course, because that's what you do if you have bigger and more powerful things. You know, they focused them, they burned through one razor blade and two razor blades and three razor blades and four razor blades. They were measuring power of these lasers in Gillettes. And, <laughs> um, and then you turn your attention to crystals and liquids and you generate new colors, things that you can't do with light. You know, light, shine one flashlight beam this way, one this way, they don't bounce off each other. Well, if you have enough intensity, they actually do. They interact with the matter. That's how they interact. Now, the question is, why would anybody worry about that happening in a fiber? There were people who were concerned. The reason is that these things happen not only very powerfully, with powerful light intensities, but over long, long distances. And you're going to have long, long distances in these optical fibers. So this was a real opportunity. I jumped at it. And we actually saw the first of these so-called nonlinear effects in optical fibers. It was a shift in the frequency of light when you zap a fiber with a laser. Went on to look at the whole catalog of these effects. And it was a great physics experience because this was a simple, beautiful system. And we could study it to death. Um, in the first days, actually it turned out, while it was great physics, it wasn't terribly relevant to the communication system. But now it is. Now uh, in these modern systems, these nonlinear effects play just an incredible role. You've got to either design around them or use them for amplification of light for these uh, uh, submarine cables across the ocean, the long distance communications, and, and soon even fiber to everybody's house. Um, so what did I learn from all this? Um, well. Number one is it helps to be first in a field. You get to skim the cream, and you've got uh, all sorts of good results before anybody else gets there. I guess the next thing is you have to be willing to change. Uh, I started out as an infrared spectroscopist and wound up being a laser physicist working with fibers. And I wasn't the only one. Uh, people working in the field had backgrounds in applied physics, material science, physical chemistry, uh, electrical engineering. There's even a guy whose degrees were in history and philosophy. Um, I've certainly seen a lot of changes. Uh, some of them maybe aren't so great for science. The, the great research labs of the uh, corporations has pretty much disappeared. You, know, you really don't find basic or even applied science in 
in any of those labs. Uh, the modern philosophy is that research should be done at universities. The only problem with that is that there seems to be less money, more people looking at, for it, uh, and the agencies have fairly tight agendas. Uh, so you've got more people after less money, and typical researcher uh, really has to spend his time hustling money. On the other hand, I think there's still lots of opportunities. How much time have I got? Two minutes. Okay, great. Um, one of the things that really kind of surprised me uh, in my few years at Virginia Tech was that we had a surprisingly hard time finding research-oriented good PhD students, particularly Americans. And the reason, well, the reason they had to be Americans is that the contract money came from industry, which got its money from the government ultimately, and from the government, and they all had US citizenship requirements. I mean, I could have found all sorts of summer jobs for students if they'd been US citizens, and what I had mostly was Indians and Chinese. Um, the other thing is that our engineering students didn't really seem to have a research bent. Um, they tended to quit at a master's level, and they tended to um, be interested more in um, seeing this as an opportunity to go into management and ultimately make a lot of money. I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for liberal arts students. Uh, maybe the physics students were like me, who didn't really think that far ahead. I mean, I went into science because I like to take things apart, was fascinated by it, and didn't really um, worry a whole lot about how I was going to eat afterwards. <laughs> um, so, but I, I, I just want to point out that I think for uh, physics, uh, math students, chemistry students, that um, graduate school in engineering, I think is, is a real opportunity and one that I think many people are passing up. I understand that it's not true. It's saying, well, they tell me 40% of uh, physics students do go to graduate school in engineering. So anyway, summing up, uh, looking back, I'm supposed to give some sort of brand advice to people. Um, if, I, if I read sort of magazines and pick up in the airport the Fortune magazine, read about this guy, we had this game plan, and, and he started out and he did it, and he followed his game plan, and he went and made zillions and, and gave a new stadium to his alma mater. Well, I didn't have a game plan. Uh, St. Olaf isn't going to get a stadium from me either. <laughs> but um, I think I've had a lot of fun and have not done badly. And I would say that life is more, um, you know, you're, you're shown doors and doors open for you and you should look in them and step in them and, uh, and, and go where you want to go. So thank you. violinist, um, but rhythm and timing sometimes are a challenge for me, so I prepared a statement that I will read um, to make sure that I'm under my 10 minutes. So first of all, I wish to say how pleased and honored I am to have been invited here to help you celebrate the dedication of your new science building. We went through this process at Minnesota State University Moorhead a few years ago, so I can confidently say that I have seen through my own eyes the positive correlation between physical surroundings and the intellectual growth of students. In fact, one of the units I teach in my secondary science methods class is called Establishing an Environment. 
In this unit, we explore the power that a physical place plus a stimulating social community has on the development of scientific thinking. In the movement towards more inquiry-based teaching, you may have heard the popular sayings urging teachers to become the guides on the side rather than the sage on the stage. Others refer to this approach as student-centered rather than teacher-centered. I preferred a modified philosophy of promoting a subject-centered classroom, an idea promoted by Parker Palmer. I tell all my students, including my non-major students, that when they walk through the classroom door, they become scientists. Together we explore how scientists look at and think about the world, and we consider how science may contribute possible solutions to the world's problems. Having the physical environment to support these intellectual journeys makes it much easier to put authentic current science at the front and center of what we do daily in our classroom and lab. Thus, I commend all of you for the intense efforts necessary for making this physical environment a reality for countless scientist students of St. Olaf for years to come. So I've been asked to share a bit of information about myself with you today. I'm, an, I'm a scientist, an educator, and a musician. On any given day, you may find me driving a big red van full of elementary education majors to visit the prairie, signing licensure paperwork for an advisee to get their teaching license, meeting with my research students to, to discuss their latest wild ideas, attending a sustainable campus initiative meeting run by students, dreaming up yet another way of trying to present the carbon cycle to my class so they'll understand it, sharing leftovers with my family, maybe a quick game of fetch with my dog, scanning the headlines of newspapers for current science articles to use in my classroom, and then usually it ends with grabbing my violin and dashing off to a quartet gig or a symphony rehearsal. I live a life of many options and a variety of interesting pursuits, all of which alternate between extracting intellectual, physical, and emotional energy from me and renewing those very same energies so that I can get up and start the next day over again with joy and enthusiasm. The balance is a bit precarious, but worth every minute. Except for the addition of a husband, a few kids, and a mortgage, my life is really not all that different than when I attended St. Olaf. <laughs> those professors here today who knew me as a student probably recall that I had one speed fast between the science building and the music building. I truly believe that St. Olaf is one of the rare communities that encourage and nurture students to fully develop all of their talents, and I've benefited tremendously from the support. It's amazing for me to think back to a time when St. Olaf was my plan B. As a senior in high school, I planned to specialize in music performance at a large university. However, when I auditioned and got a scholarship at a university music school, I was told that I'd be far too busy practicing and rehearsing to take more than the minimum science classes, especially any with labs. It did not take me very long to come up with a plan B where I decided I would attend St. Olaf for two years, take a bunch of fun science classes to get them out of my system, then transfer to the university to complete my music major. I think it took me all of one or two semesters to completely forget that plan. I have such vivid memories of times that professors noticed my work in lab, encouraged me to reach and strive higher to a potential I never dreamed that I had. Likewise, my music professors did not distinguish between the music majors and the non-majors, and instead gave us all a wonderfully immersive experience in the world of music. I try to remember this every day when I teach my own students, that a well-placed, genuine remark of confidence in the student's ability can stay with that student forever. If someone told me as a freshman or sophomore that I would end up teaching science, I would have been utterly terrified at the thought of standing up in front of a class. I sometimes wonder if there's a conspiracy going on among the St. Olaf biology faculty to turn me into a teacher. How could these professors recognize the teacher in me, the person voted shyest in the senior class in high school? I'm eternally grateful for the professors who took me aside and said, I noticed you really enjoyed lab. Would you like to consider being a teaching assistant for my class next year? That little bit of encouragement and subsequent mentoring can be life-changing, as it certainly was for me. 
I was incredibly fortunate to become involved in a research project with Dr. Henry Kermont the summer after my junior year. Several of us undergraduates lived in the back of a ranch house um, in Wyoming and studied the behavior of house wrens for one of the most memorable summers of my life. This experience gave me a feel for the intellectual rigor along with the stubborn persistence required of a, of a successful scientific researcher. I cannot imagine being able to even apply to graduate school, much less carrying out a successful dissertation project without this experience. I had committed to, to majoring in biology before this summer, which was a heart-wrenching decision anyway, given my interest in music. But after this research experience, I knew that I just had to find a way to pursue an advanced degree and become a scientist. As a beginning graduate student at Stony Brook University's Ecology and Evolution program, I secretly compared myself to the incredibly bright and experienced members of my cohort and worried that I might not measure up. Yet I soon discovered that while some of my graduate student colleagues had scores of specialized biology classes under their belts, I was able to hold my own as a general scholar of biology. This is a direct gift resulting from my experiences in the discussion-oriented, literature-based classes I took at St. Olaf, such as animal behavior, natural history of vertebrates, and field ecology, just to name a few. In talking to some students this afternoon, it sounds like there are even more opportunities now for students to engage themselves and each other in professional-level dialogue. Being comfortable with this process is essential for success in graduate school. Graduate school taught me the contrasting values of persistence and flexibility. I can only admit now, 10 years after receiving my PhD, how precariously close I came a few times to not finishing my degree. While combining graduate school with motherhood of two very small children, I discovered the value of a pragmatic and synergistic approach. I was not accustomed to not being able to do it all, and for the first time in my life, something needed to give. For a few years, my music went into hibernation while I purposely searched for a project that would be exciting, meaningful, and successful. I'm a firm believer in establishing realistic, tangible goals that will get you a step closer to your idealistic dreams. As an aside, I see this, this philosophy embodied in my 17-year-old son and his long-distance runner friends. The physiological constraints on the human body necessitate a gradual, systematic plan to push back those constraints as far as possible within one's own potential in the effort to run longer and faster. Graduate school, for me, felt very much the same way. And yes, there were times when I wanted to get out of the race. However, the people I surrounded myself with, just like at St. Olaf, encouraged me when the times were tough. I also selected an advisor and committee members whose attitudes towards science, teaching, and life I very much admired. So I retained a holistic feel to counteract the reductionistic tendencies of graduate school. You may wonder, how did I give up my violin for so long? While there are al always alternative pathways to a destination, in, in my case, a construction worker on the rental house I lived in heard me practicing one day, and as it turned out, he, he happened to be an amateur concert pianist, and he had a son who needed a violin teacher. So I spent three years channeling my music energy into this student-teacher relationship, providing a much-needed counterbalance to the pressures of graduate school, and one more unintentional push toward becoming the teacher that I am today. My desire to teach grew stronger throughout graduate school, and at one point, I knew that I just had to see where it would take me. With the blessing of my, of my advisor, who was a huge supporter of science education at all levels, I took a year off of graduate school and taught biology at a private high school. My plan then was to complete my dissertation during the summers, yet after I plunged headfirst into teaching, I realized I could not do justice to my teaching and still write the quality dissertation I wanted to produce. So it was time to get out my list of pros and cons, and most importantly, get the advice from people I respected to get a broader perspective at the crossroads in front of me. I have my mother and my grandmother to thank for 
their encouragement to visualize the doors that would become open to me if I finished my degree and to remind me that I was not really closing that teaching door. I refocused my efforts, finished my dissertation, and then promptly took a job teaching at the high school level. Little did I know that the experiences I was gaining through my teaching would satisfy the State Board of Teaching requirements for the position that I hold today at the university level that allows me to work with prospective science teachers. Yet I did not go directly to the university level, but rather took advantage of additional work opportunities and a series of different career explorations, such as working in a science museum, developing online curricula, and becoming involved in K-12 teacher professional development. I was not sure what I would end up doing, but I did know that each one of these opportunities that I said yes to would teach me something new and expose me to wonderful minds who may think differently about the world than me. My music remained a consistent force in my life during this rapidly changing time as well. So as I look back at the various decisions I made and the crossroads I faced, I ended up ultimately choosing options consistent with sharing knowledge with others. My experiences at St. Olaf were the true beginnings of what turned out to be my passion and my career. My advice to current students is to recognize that there are large and small opportunities everywhere, but you must be open to them. Listen carefully to words of encouragement and invitations to participate. Accept those invitations, whether they are, whether they are addressed directly to you or to a larger group. Be flexible, be deliberate, move forward incrementally, but dream monumentally. Above all, keep fueling your passions so that they can carry you forward in the face of indecision, successes, and failures as you chart your own unique course into the future. to be back here at St. Olaf participating in the sort of dedication and introduction of this beautiful new facility. And as we learned a little bit about each other and our backgrounds and where we've been since our years at St. Olaf, it really struck a chord of how core St. Olaf science and math education is and, and how that core education can send us forth to serve our communities, to serve society in really so many different ways. And I think it's wonderful, and I think it really speaks volumes about what, what today and what this afternoon is all about. 
So first, a little bit about me and my career. I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer for Northwest Airlines, and I will fill that role for Delta Airlines later this year as our merger closes. So first, to kind of draw the timeline, 20 years ago this fall, impossible. <laughs> um, I was a senior at St. Olaf, as was Allison, majoring in chemistry and math. And um, actually at that time, about this time last fall, we would have been preparing to go on tour with the St. Olaf Orchestra. Um, I was just about to meet my husband, Jim, uh, my future husband. And at the time also, I was applying for the PhD program in applied math at Cornell University. So now flash forward 20 years, I do hold that degree in applied math. Um, Jim and I have two wonderful children who are sitting right over there, nine-year-old <laughs> nine Anna and six-year-old Jonathan, and we didn't bring along their two-year-old puppy. Um, but, and I do still play violin with the Bloomington Symphony, maybe not quite as crisply as I once did, but every day I draw on the lessons that I learned in and out of the math and science classrooms here at St. Olaf. So a little bit maybe about my career. As the airline's chief information officer, I'm ultimately responsible for all of the technology systems that keep the airline running safely and reliably, and in good years, profitably as well. <laughs> we have a mix of those. Um, I've been working in operations research in technology and at Northwest Airlines for a little over 15 years and in the role that I'm in now for about seven years. Having started that role notably in September of 2001 in the midst of some pretty dark days. Um, for me, the thrill of this career extends from the fact that this technology touches literally every aspect of our business, from the customer's experience to the operation to the back office, albeit in many different ways. And for the mathematician, the scientist, the computer scientist, there are seemingly endless or limitless ways to serve the business, the people who are a part of it, and the communities who need it. It's an opportunity to make a difference in, in kind of a tangible way and leave things a little better than where we found them. So to highlight a few areas of this technology and maybe a few aspects of some of the science that's um, behind them, the first place I'll take you is to your airline reservation. If you've ever called up and made a reservation or made a reservation online, it's part of this enormous repository of all of the pricing information, the inventory, all of the seats that are available. Um, the reservations, the customer information that looks back in time a couple of years as well as forward in time for over a year. It's accessed and updated millions of times every day from throughout the world. And it needs to be amazingly rapid yet perfectly reliable with low cost, simple transactions that interact with many other systems and organs, organisms inside and outside of our core business. And you know, clearly aspects of, of the science and the mathematics behind that. A very different example, and one that I've worked with since the time I was a student, is the large-scale mathematical optimization model that enables the scheduling of the airline overall. And in particular, where I first became involved with it was, was with the pilots and with the crews. The airline flies hundreds of flights each day across a network that has five core hubs throughout the world. And each of those flights needs to be covered uniquely with this qualified crew of pilots and flight attendants, and the number of which actually varies by flight and may not be known much in advance. 
Um, so each of those pilots and flight attendants then starts at their home base. They, they fly a route through the system maybe one day, it may be up to five, seven, ten days. And as you imagine, over the course of a month, there are trillions and trillions of combinations of, of crew members and flights. And the cost to the airline, as well as the sort of personal cost to each of those people in that job or in that role, that varies from one solution to another can be enormous. And a mathematically optimal solution would be great, but actually isn't yet um, achievable approval. But even a tenth of a percent improvement can make a meaningful difference in somebody's life or, or in the sort of economics. It's both an intellectual challenge, it's a tangible business challenge, and, um, and something that's out there. A sort of fun fact on that one is that it's at least possible that the core of what a lot of the airlines use today might have been influenced by a St. Olaf math practicum from January of 1988. It was a project that was for Cray Research, and it was looking at ways to parallel process something known as the Karmakar algorithm to enable it to be used for large industry-based applications. And now, while I don't think Karmakar and his algorithm ever quite made it to the crew optimization in the airline world, what it did was generate kind of an excitement about solving those types of problems, and, and as you're alluding to, and funding into some of that research, and the possibilities and all of that. And I, for, I was one of those who was ultimately captured by that wave. So now with my math background in math and science and, and sort of a love of problem solving, you might see why I was drawn into this career, this aspect. Um, and, and again, as several of us have mentioned, when you leave yourself open to just a broad range of possibilities and maybe have a goal or have a direction, but just leave open those possibilities. Um, a background such as ours, or a background that's offered from St. Olaf, can take us to so many really interesting places. And um, so how does a typical day look now for a CIO of an airline? Well, every day is a new adventure, but a typical day or week may include strategy sessions about how a business solution might be enabled by technology or operations research. Um, it might be one-on-one -on -one meetings with team members who are other IT leaders talking about goals, projects, maybe the cohesiveness of the team, maybe about individual effectiveness. Um, there's a teaching aspect to that. Um, there are negotiations that are a part of it. Um, there's, there's presentations and persuading a steering committee mem maybe to invest in a new solution. Um, it, might, it might involve reaching out to, to a broader team of, of several thousand people maybe with, with information, insights, and hopefully a little bit of inspiration. Again, all of these that we draw from our experiences that we would have had here at St. Olin. So if you were to ask for two elements of this career that I love, it's the logistics, it's the problem solving, and it's creating a community that's centered on a common goal and purpose. And there is no question that the stage was set for these uh, with my years here at St. Olaf in and out of our math and science classrooms. So 20 years in retrospect, if I were to offer um, feedback to faculty, I think that was one of the questions that you asked us. Um, what would I say? It would be keep offering the outstanding academic experience. That is clearly a big piece of the core element. But know that what sets St. Olaf 
apart, and I would even say miles apart from, from others that I've seen, is your passion for teaching. It's the special interest that you take in each and every one of us as students um, and carving out that unique piece and moving it forward. Um, another question was um, advice to students who are preparing for life beyond St. Olaf. And there I would point to three things. Um, I would say first, know that this is an amazing place. As undergraduates, you have an opportunity to do things that, like the math practicum, like independent or summer research projects with your science professors that, that just aren't available everywhere. Second, I would say study hard. What you're learning about really does matter. You may not see the application of it today, but years in the future you'll look back and be pulling out those nuggets and those pieces. And third and most important, in the words that nine-year-old Anna brought home last month from her teacher, who herself has a strong St. Olaf connection, um, the third and most important, I would say, is carpe diem and seize the day. really great to be back on campus finally. I think I saw Bunt Rock a couple years ago for a few minutes and uh, the campus is just beautiful in the fall and it's, it's great to see everything again. Uh, I really am resonating with the interdisciplinary nature of the building you have here and the opportunities that's going to give the students and faculty for coordinating uh, work with each other. You have a a time frame in, in science right now where it's really focusing on, on really coordinating with others and the interdisciplinary nature of, of getting work done in science and just pushing everybody to be together and, and coordinating and mixing up the office space. And uh, I wish I had the luxury of being in a building full of uh, more than just my chemistry colleagues, uh, 100 or so of us staff researchers and all the people we work with were in our own chemistry building and we're called chemistry and that's where we sit. Um, uh, one of the, the things that I've noticed in working at a place in a government laboratory like NRL is that those of us who come from a liberal arts science education know who each other are. We, we have found each other out and it's very obvious who we are once we know uh, a little bit about our colleagues and I've been resonating with some of the things that, that many of you on the panel have already, have already said. And, um, it's a very uh, a wonderful opportunity to get to be able to, to participate in a school like St. Olaf where you can be in the orchestra uh, as well as be in the science uh, community and, and there's a, an option for every student at a school like this to really find some way to, to learn about a variety of things as well as take opportunities to become uh, adept at being a leader in whatever it is that, that interests you and that's something different I think that, that liberal arts schools offer. Is this mic not working? Sure. I could project if I, if I make a better effort. Um, I wanted to speak to kind of how 
based on the questions we were given, how we kind of find our way from a St. Olaf education to where we wind up uh, today. And um, I couldn't have predicted that I would work in a military laboratory. Um, I'm not really working on, on military equipment so much, but um, it, it's a series of, like somebody said earlier, a series of doors, or not quite a random walk, but a series of opportunities and choices taken and you decide to go one direction or another and then that leads you down another path or another and generally you don't go backwards, but you don't necessarily close any doors behind you. You just keep opening different doors and seeing where it leads you. And um, what I was uh, gonna just spend a few minutes telling you how a St. Olaf physics major wound up looking at barnacle microbiology. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm any good at barnacle microbiology, but um, I'm, I'm trying. Um, so in high school, when I was considering what kind of school to go to, I knew that I was interested in science, and I was looking around at the different schools. I wasn't looking very far. I can tell you that the two students nearest to me in my class ranking went to Harvard and uh, uh, the Air Force Academy, I believe. I didn't even look at schools like that. Um, I was interested in, in science, and I knew that, but I was also um, intrigued by the, the Lutheran colleges nearby in Minnesota, and when looking at the, the uh, curricula for those colleges, it was very clear that St. Olaf was a very good choice to make. And I didn't even think twice. I applied early, and I got in early, and I showed up, and I didn't uh, ever regret that choice. Um, I showed up right away. I looked at the course curriculum, and I decided that if I was interested in science, in fact, I had been interested in engineering, but I had chosen to come to St. Olaf despite the fact that it didn't have engineering opportunity because of the, the strength of the curriculum. Um, and I decided I had to start with physics or I wouldn't maybe get through it if I didn't, you know, if I couldn't choose to not do physics and decide it later. So I actually chose to do a physics major because I knew I could choose to do a chemistry major my uh, sophomore year. <laughs> so I'll, that's a dirty secret, but it's, that was why I decided <laughs> it. And then uh, what happened was that was also Amy Cullen's first year. And uh, Amy was a lively instructor and um, we had several women in the class, and it was a very friendly place to be for women, uh, and I found that to be very, uh, a good thing, and I, while I wouldn't necessarily have not been in physics had it not been for that, uh, that was a, a positive influence. Um, I did take chemistry here, I did not major in chemistry, but I started taking chemistry classes. I took a lot of chemistry, everything except organic chemistry, uh, and I think I didn't take physical chemistry, but I help people with their homework. Um, <laughs> being in physics, you can do that. Um, and I took a lot of math because we had to for physics, and uh, I really liked my math classes as well, but I really liked physics a lot better. And the real reason why I went into science, ultimately, is because uh, the laboratory experience I had here at St. Olaf was so good. Um, I really, really liked the physics laboratory. I had a really um, great laboratory. Uh, partner and uh, partner in crime really and we had we had a, a very good time and I really uh, learned a lot about how to be a scientist by uh, really being pushed and, and working in the laboratory um, while I was while I was here and that gave me the the feeling that that was the kind of thing I really like to do and and it gave me a little bit of um, idea that that maybe would be something I was interested in when I was finishing my physics major, I really wasn't sure what area I really wanted to go in. I didn't know what direction necessarily to go. 
Um, unlike the high school students that I work with today, I didn't have really an opportunity to go and work in a, in a big laboratory uh, while I was uh, at, at St. Olaf or in high school, so I didn't have an experience of you know, knowing all kinds of different things. I knew what teachers did, I knew what doctors did, I knew what ministers did, but I really didn't know all the different kinds of options I might have in science. And um, I think if I remember this correctly, Jim Cedarberg actually suggested to me that I should look at graduate programs in material science. So I had been looking maybe at chemistry and thinking about physics and wasn't really sure. And, and he suggested material science programs and I actually wound up um, applying to some different material science programs and uh, uh, Bruce is laughing in the back. Um, we were supposed to apply to 10 different programs in 10 different cities and, and, and uh, we were getting married right after college. My husband's in the back and I wound up only applying to three cities. Um, and so we had three, three choices of places to go and we wound up in uh, Chicago. And uh, that was an interesting time. Bruce will probably uh, laugh in the back as well. Uh, again, a series of doors that open and close. I, I thought that going to grad school and, and having, uh, in sciences, you get a, a, a stipend, okay? And you're gonna get your way paid, which is great. And I got the impression that I would have a year to you know, check it out and figure out what was going on, decide what area of science I wanted to go into. And within a few weeks of getting there, we had listened to lectures by all the professors, what they were doing, and, and then we had to choose which professor we were gonna work for. And so it wasn't even just choosing which professor you were gonna work for, you had to choose which topic you would work on. And so here I was coming from St. Olaf physics major in this new field called material science, which basically, uh, to describe it, you get in there and you find out that there's like 100 different kinds of steels and 100 different kinds of aluminum and they're all processed differently. They have these different microstructures and it's just a very different mindset to, to becoming from sort of a liberal classical education in physics and chemistry and learning that there's, you know, just this very difficult, very uh, complex things about materials you didn't know. So I was overwhelmed by these choices and I uh, apparently came home every night from school uh, not sure, certain about what, whether or not if I chose to work with this professor in what's called tribology or sliding and rubbing surfaces, whether I would have to do tribology for the rest of my life. Um, well, my life isn't over and I'm still doing tribology. I haven't regretted it since at least choosing it. Um, and uh, fortunately, I haven't had to only do tribology so that these doors that continue to open and close, I can find other things to, to do as well. Um, so I managed to finish uh, a degree at Northwestern, and again, another choice came up. I had to decide where, uh, where I might go next, whether I was gonna take a, a, try to get a job in industry as an engineering student, or whether I would uh, go on and do a postdoctoral work, and uh, the job market was pretty bad. And uh, my first interview at a company, I didn't get the job. Um, very thankful for that now. Uh, and I wound up uh, interviewing two different groups, NIST, which is a used to be the National Institutes of Standards and Technology in Washington, D.C., and the Naval Research Laboratory. And um, I sort of I interviewed with my boss on a Saturday in his, in his, in his home, and we hit it off discussing tribology, and, and that was an easy decision to go to the Naval Research Laboratory as a postdoc. Um, every time you make these choices, different, different things happen. 
and I wound up in a place where there was a lot of good mentoring opportunities for, for becoming a, a research scientist. And I took those opportunities when they came by working with other people at NRL, not just my group, and learning other techniques and other skills by doing that. Um, I'm in a chemistry division, okay, I have a degree in material science, a graduate degree in material science, undergraduate work in physics. I'm in the chemistry division, I work for a physicist, and so you can see this sort of interdisciplinary nature of, of science is very easy. One minute? Okay. I'm almost done. Um, and so I've wound up in, in, a, in a situation where I've been able to evolve investigating surfaces and interfaces and by just simply learning a few new skill sets and looking at whether or not, uh, for example, one of my colleagues was looking at actuating polymers and I got interested in coordinating some efforts with them, did a Google search, wound up looking at silk materials and called up an expert on silk and wound up collaborating on spider silk mechanics, which led me down a path of biomaterials, which allowed me to learn enough about them such that when I started working on barnacle adhesion, I was brave enough to look at barnacle biochemistry and the adhesion chemistry by coordinating with um, evolutionary biologists and people who do CAT scan tomography of, um, of, of metals in the material science department were willing to throw the barnacles in their CAT scan uh, tomography unit and do CAT scans of the barnacles. And so being able to sort of evolve one's, one's approach to, to these different areas sort of led me down the path of having to walk into a, a, a biology laboratory and figure out which micropipe header and which um, pipette end tip to put on it. And I'm still not really good at that, but I'm, I'm getting there. Um, to end, what would I do over? I skipped organic chemistry. That dogs me to this day. <laughs> um, and working in a chemistry division, if I'm up there giving a lecture, and they, they, I can't say, uh, well, I'm not a chemist. They, they'll, they, 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 don't, they don't like that if I say that. Um, I skipped biology entirely here, which um, dogs me too, because I'm trying to figure out what, which amino acids are which ones. And, um, this, this interdisciplinary nature, uh, you can take a lot of, uh, if you're up there and you're a physics major, don't skip biology, it might dog you. Um, find your passion, okay, these are my life tips, find your passion. The dirty little secret in my life is that I would do my job for free. Don't tell the Navy that. <laughs> um, do what you like and like what you do. Okay, that sounds like a cliche, but if you find something you really like to do, um, you're going to have a good time doing it. And, and uh, that will show in your work, and it will show to your students and the other people that you're working with. So, uh, again, I'm really thankful for having been at St. Olaf, and this has been uh, great coming back. I lecture every day. I don't sit when I talk to an audience, so I'm going to stand. I hope that's okay. Um, if you can't hear me, let me know. But that's never been a problem I've had in the past. So um, I also want to express my sincere appreciation to the leadership here. Um, seeing this building is a testimony to the continued um, 
importance of science to this community. And I think we all appreciate the fact that this country needs more people trained in the scientific method and more people who can communicate that um, discipline in a more effective way. And so um, I was asked to sort of you know, tie in my same old experience to my current, um, what I do now. And when I think back, boy, I graduated almost 30 years ago. And it's the first time I've stepped on the campus since I graduated, which is very sad to say. But between careers and children and traveling all over the world, I can't tell you how nice it is to be back. So when I think about the decisions that I made about what college to or university to attend, it's very different than what I experienced with my two children who are currently now um, in college. Back then, I picked three schools. So my high school chemistry teacher said, consider St. Olaf. My high school math teacher said, consider Carlton. <laughs> my grandfather, who is a strong Irish Catholic, said you must go to Notre Dame. <laughs> so I visited two schools, and I came to St. Olaf. And it was really a visceral decision. I mean, I walked on this campus, and I felt part of the herd. And you might say, well, how could you feel part of a herd? I was an Irish-Polish Catholic. <laughs> and there was no diversity 30 years ago. My classmates were Norwegian Lutherans. And um, so, but I felt part of an, an academic community here. I came with certain ideas, and those ideas were challenged. And I was exposed to certain ideas, and I challenged those ideas. But I left with different ideas than what I came here with. And I, and, and again, I'm the last one speaking here. I'm a science nerd. But St. Olaf didn't let me be a science nerd. So for you budding scientists in the back, you have to be, to be successful in science. You have to know the science, but you have to know how to communicate those ideas. And you have to have interpersonal skills. And those are also things that I, I learned through my experience at St. Olaf that has helped propel me in my career today. Um, because as a investigator at a major university, I don't do science anymore. I mentor, I get up and talk. I'm a small business person. I've got to write grants to support my work. I have to mentor young people. I have to lecture. I have to travel around the world and sell my science and explain my science. I'm not pipetting anything. So these skills are very important and I, I cannot emphasize them enough to you. So another experience, and I'm so happy he's in the audience here. <laughs> Ted Johnson taught me when I was here and he first exposed me to biology, which is my field, okay? And he was an inspirational teacher. I became very interested in cancer. But 30 years ago, cancer was a black box. We didn't have molecular biology techniques. We certainly didn't have the human genome sequenced. So how do you investigate a black box? Well, what I learned from my experience at St. Olaf, if you want to tackle a problem, it has to be a tractable problem. So how do you get at this problem. So in those days, one of the best ways to try to understand cancers was to try <coughs> to understand how viruses, certain viruses, cause cancers. So viruses are small little packets of genetic material, and they encode proteins that can transform <coughs> cells, okay? So the idea was by studying these little things that didn't encode much, and trying to understand how they interface with the cell, we could understand the cancer problem. So I went, I 
did my PhD work at Duke University Medical School, and I worked on a small RNA virus. I then moved to the Dana-Farber Pitzer Institute, and I worked on a DNA tumor virus. And from there, we, I became interested in just the molecular underpinnings of how signaling pathways work in cells, and then that led me to try to understand how the cell division cycle is regulated. And now I'm actually conducting clinical trials in cancer patients with my colleagues at Washington University School of Medicine. Now, if you told me 30 years ago I was going to be a scientist, I would have said, you are crazy. To me, scientists were, you know, all these nerds that lived in a laboratory and didn't communicate, and I just had all these um, visions that just weren't true. And I always thought I wanted to be a teacher. And so I went to college thinking I'll be a high school teacher, and I felt I didn't have enough information. So I went to graduate school, and I thought I'll be a college teacher. And once you get it, I got in the laboratory, and, you know, you are entering the world of the unknown. So you are trying to understand the complexity of nature. And you come up with a question. And when you, you, know, you get a result where you think you understand something, it was a major endorphin release. And there was, you know, there, it, there was really no going back, although I still do teaching. My primary goal is in the laboratory and educating our future scientists on the scientific method and how to pose hypotheses test those hypotheses and go on from there. So it's it's a wonderful career. I'm, I've never left the academic world. I've gone from my first faculty position was at Tufts Medical School. My second faculty position was at Harvard Medical School. I've been at Washington University School of Medicine for 15 years. I am around brilliant colleagues who challenge my thought process every day. I'm around brilliant young people that keep me young, that come into my laboratory just full of ideas and adventure, and, um, and it's a very, very rewarding experience. Um, for those of you who are thinking of this career, I think it offers tremendous flexibility. I've been able to maintain a wonderful relationship with my husband, I've been married now almost 30 years. Um, we have two children. Um, I've never had to miss any activity that they do because I can do my work anytime I want. I'm not in the lab typing anymore, so I can do it after they went to bed. I could do it while I'm in between soccer games or whatever. So the flexibility of that profession is, has been really wonderful. And just the intellectual aspects of it have been wonderful. And you get to grow in your career. You start as a graduate student, and then you do postdoctoral research fellow if you go my path. And then you work in a, you know, I went to um, sort of high-powered academic communities. Um, I now have many opportunities. I can go into leadership positions. I can go and work for the government. So there's always change. So as your life changes and as you grow, you don't know what the world is going to be like. But this profession offers you um, constant intellectual challenge and constant change. And um, that started here at St. Olaf. So I'll stop here. Thank you very much.
microphone, so I will answer. Um, <laughs> yes, um, I think that in my field, biology, um, there is such a need for more interdisciplinary science, like Kathy was talking about with chemistry and physics and biology. But we are exploring, in my department um, up at Minnesota State University Moorhead, we're exploring uh, different disciplines that we know students need to become aware of, for example, biophysics, and bringing together people who haven't traditionally studied and talked together so that they can begin to understand what these cutting edge research um, efforts are, are, are at. And so our students can then be at the cutting edge as well. So when you get to the professor uh, side of things, you have to remember not to, to uh, stick with your comfort zone, but to try to stay a couple steps ahead so that the students will benefit when they go on to graduate school and beyond. And I would maybe highlight that particularly at the undergraduate level, starting to build that foundation of understanding across disciplines is as we move forward and move on, it's where the breakthroughs are. The breakthroughs are often appear in those, in that space between any of the individual disciplines. Uh, first off, I was very pleased to see the way this building's been organized. They're putting the physics professors next to the chemistry professors, next to the biochemistry professors, and I, opportunity, I had an opportunity to meet with some of the professors here who um, talking to me about some of the interdisciplinary approaches they're taking. But you know, we at Washington University recognize this as a true need. And I think universities are the best place to do this. Um, so we are trying to integrate our physical sciences, biomedical engineering, and chemistry and physics on the undergrad side with the medical side. But it is a, it is a huge challenge. There's no question. We've tried to integrate some of our biomedical engineers into our first year cell biology class, and they, the languages are so different that it's very challenging, but we don't step down from challenges in academics. This is the way of the future, and this is what we're gonna have to do, so. It's interesting that the universities talk about this, they have names, uh, cross-cutting was the one at Virginia Tech, um, and yet the entire system in some strange way at the university is set up to, um, to go the opposite direction. Uh, success is measured by being an empire builder and building this group, uh, and so people tend to uh, focus on narrow, narrow disciplines and don't interact with, with other fields and other places. Now, I was impressed to see that uh, St. Olaf was trying to break that pattern, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Okay, there is a question. One here, one here, one there. Right. I've just, just retired after 42 years as a professor of chemistry at Purdue University. And what I think the most challenging thing, and you brought it up very nicely, is the tendency of trying to have your specialty, but omit other areas. And as some of you said, you know, I wish I had taken chemistry, or I wish I had, I, in my case, I had almost no biology. But later in my research career, 
this is a very tough proposition. How do you get the depth in an area so people can reason in that area and still have the breadth to appreciate the other areas? And what do you want to tackle that? Well, I mean, and again, I'll use uh, Washington University as an example. So our graduate program is an umbrella. Our students come in to the biomedical sciences. And within that, they pick a focus area. And as part of that, they then have an individual curriculum. Where, so if your specialty is gonna be biochemistry, there's certain core courses you must take. And if it's gonna be cell biology, there's core courses you are going to take. But then we offer a whole host of cross-talk disciplines. And, and, and the way these systems can work is you, you develop a collegial environment where uh, you know, the professors talk. So I interact more with colleagues outside my own department than I do within my department because you go where your research takes you. And the government does not fund narrow, at least in my area, which is biomedical research. You cannot get a grant in a, in a minor area anymore. You have to tackle a big problem, which takes a lot of technologies. And so if you're at an institution, you work together. And I have students that, I mean, my God, I got my PhD in microbiology and immunology. I haven't thought about immunology in 30 years. We developed a mouse model where they had an immunology phenotype. They go to the immunology department and they learn the discipline and bring it back. So I think you can create environments where it's encouraged, it's supported, and your students go where their research takes you. And some of it's demanded by their coursework and other is encouraged through where their research takes them. We probably should take a question in the far back. Is there one? Let's see, Brian. There's one in the very far back and then Brian. I wanted to just pick up on that theme and actually espouse to say a little environment in that way. We're all talking about this interdisciplinary work that all of us as scientists are commonly engaged in. And a fundamental part of that is communication. I think that point has been brought up. And really, this is a conversation with one of undergraduates. As science majors, so important to be able to write well, communicate ideas clearly, and be able to really uh, uh, interact um, with, with your ability to communicate. As, as mentioned, interdisciplinary programs require the incredible ability to communicate clearly and precisely. So looking back, it, it, it myself as an attempted interdisciplinary science, what I wish I
I would like to, to, to echo that comment. I really was somewhat naive, I guess, when I got out. I loved being in the lab, and when I wound up after a PhD to succeed, what you need to be able to do is market yourself. You need to be able to communicate effectively. You need to be able to be willing to stand up in front of a crowd and be a public speaker, which in eighth grade terrified me to no end. That was never anything I would ever do on purpose, was put myself up speaking in front of a crowd of people, but I have to do it. And I actually like doing it now. And so all of these things that say, you know, writing, okay, writing papers. That's, you know, if I go in the lab and do something, no one's gonna find out about it unless I get it published. And so all of these things when you're in your lit class or, you know, frankly, in an interdisciplinary environment like this, are, are you, as St. Olaf professors and faculty, creating opportunities to write um, in the sciences uh, or coordinating with, with the, the other um, disciplines around here to, to see how that can be coordinated in, in, your, in your curricula as well. But there's so many of those different um, aspects that aren't really in the science curricula that to be a successful scientist is Absolutely critical. So that was a good comment. I have a question for Teresa. Uh, last month, my husband was trying to, was going to get a first class airline ticket. <laughs> 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 on Northwest from Washington through Minneapolis, and then on Pittsburgh, it was $880. Then he went in and, and uh, looked at a uh, first class ticket from Spokane to, to But, but as you can imagine, there's a tremendous amount of mathematics and science behind the models that are looking at the, the forecasting of, you know, what do consumers want? Where is the consumer choice? How do we drive that in a way that enables what the consumer wants as well as enables profitability as well? <laughs> because the formula is not based on the number of miles. It's based on the demand. It's based on willingness to pay. It's based on all of those things. But, but, but again, you know, and, and again, you know, sort of teasingly, but those just become applications that enable us in many ways to fund mathematics and science and research and some of those items as well. dilemma of St. Olaf, right? That's that's the St. Olaf dilemma, and really had I wanted to take only all of those science courses, I probably would have been at a, a big university, and I wouldn't have gotten this education. It, it, it's really... Actually, I'm the captain of the 
jump in if you don't mind. Um, two years ago, I got, I got a chance to attend a meeting of 100 of the nation's ecologists. And that was a very exciting meeting where we were trying to set the agenda for what is the cutting edge ecological research that needs to be done, especially in light of environmental issues that we face today. What was really neat about this meeting is that they invited the social scientists. We, they didn't tell us. But when we showed up, all of a sudden, when we broke into small groups, there was some sociologists, some political scientists, some economists, and they added so much to the discussion and helped us get out of our scientific box and think about the rest of, of the world. So yes, I, I do see um, things going in that direction. Anyone else? I can say that Kathy up there, Noel, is great at teaching you how to make lessa. <laughs> so she has taken another round. <laughs> I think we'll take one more question. I think there was one right there. Yes? I'm just interested in, uh, I'm a science educator and, uh, at a university, and I'm wondering what the panel would uh, <coughs> comment about what is needed in the K-12 sector to get people interested to even want to come to Singapore, which I think everybody will do. Um, to, to develop the passion earlier, I guess, is the genesis of my question. I mean, what do we need to do in the science and math area particularly? I'll make a comment on the math front because, I mean, that's, that's been and has always been just a huge interest or passion for me. It's also, you know, what is it that happens when 
Okay, so Anna and Johnny walked out. But, um, you know, when you have these little kids who, particularly, and I get to say it, little girls, who are just passionate about math and love it, and what is it that changes as they go through? And, and what is it that causes that shift? And, and where does that interest go? Because I go into our elementary school with the third and fourth graders, and it's just amazing their excitement about it. And a lot of the discussions that, that some of us have had on this front has been the idea of sort of, in the elementary school, the scripted talking to the children versus even at that very young age, what we've been experimenting with a little bit in our elementary schools is trying to start opening a dialogue with them around math. And then that the teacher doesn't need to have the answers. Part of the excitement is exploring it with each other and even with the teacher. And it's sometimes even more exciting when the teacher can't answer it and the kids leave to explore about it. So it's, it is, it's sort of the scientific process brought into that, even at that very young age. As it was a Kathy that commented that the excitement is when you solve something that, that you feel like isn't so simple or isn't so scripted. I'd like to comment on that because <clears throat> this was a, a problem that was actually discovered, or Virginia Tech thought they had discovered a problem with kids in their early education. I mean, when I was a kid, I took everything apart. Um, every toy was taken apart. Um, you don't realize how hard it is to get a mainspring back in a clock or a watch. <laughs> um, and I wasn't alone. I mean, there were all in graduate school. There were all these guys from New York who um, tromped down to uh, hobby shops and camera stores, and they took apart cameras. Well, it turns out that kids get to college in engineering and science, and they haven't taken things apart. Uh, and they actually had a course where they gave them things to take apart. They took apart an instant camera, they took apart a bicycle. Um, and there's something about the world and all the stuff that you have, probably it's all chip-driven electronics, and you take it apart, you don't learn anything. And uh, I would say finding things to take apart would probably be the most valuable things that could be done for little kids. Yeah, just a quick comment too. Um, I, two words come to mind for the K-12, and that's personal relevance. Um, so making the science and math personally relevant to the, to the children, um, but considering the developmental stage. Uh, and just one quick example that I often give to my science method students is um, thinking about, oh, oftentimes uh, teachers, teachers teach about the destruction of the rainforest, maybe to second or third graders. Well, are they really ready to hear about such weighty issues when they maybe might be better served running around catching insects in their schoolyard and learning about the diversity of their area later on in the middle school and in the, in the secondary, um, the high school, then they can start wrestling with those larger issues and they will be more interested in them and invested in them.
you don't regret it as much as I do. This is the first scientific panel I've ever sat on where the female succeeded the male. Small gift of appreciation. Yeah. 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 Yeah.